0: So for the season of Advent, we're going to be spending time together in the book of Isaiah. So if you grabbed one of the, uh, one of the guest Bibles, um, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be on page 553 this morning there in chapter 7. And uh, for those of you that are interested in uh, maybe reading ahead over the next several weeks, we're going to be uh, sort of in that Chapter 7, 8, 9 range. We're not going to go all through Isaiah. Isaiah is a rather large book of the Bible. We don't have time to do that, but we are going to be looking at some key passages from uh, these early chapters as they uh, pertain to Advent and this time of the year. Uh, Of course, for you Bible students that uh, care about such things, and, and for the rest of us who, who need a little bit of context for where we are in the Bible, uh, by this time in the history of God's people, uh, which is following the reigns of David and Solomon, uh, God's people have divided into two separate kingdoms, and they're even rival kingdoms. You have uh, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, and both those kingdoms have collapsed uh, into moral and spiritual decay and rebellion against God. And so God raised up prophets, and that's why we have uh, the major and the minor prophets. They, they, God raised these prophets up during this period of time um, to convey messages of both warning and hope for the people of God, something that we're gonna see uh, even in this passage we're gonna be in here together this morning there in, in chapter seven. Uh, as we come to chapter seven, there on page 553 if you grab the guest Bible, um, as we come to this chapter, if we were reading through Isaiah, uh, we get to verse 1 here in, in chapter 7, we learn that, um, that the kingdom of Israel in the north, along with the kingdom of Syria, uh, they have um, colluded. They, they've come together to form a coalition. They're conspiring against Judah in the south, and their plan is to invade. They want to come and invade uh, Jerusalem. Um, and when King Ahaz there in Judah catches wind of the plot, it says In chapter 7, verse 2, that the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear, like trees shaking in a storm. But the story doesn't end there in verse 2. If we read there in verses 3 through 9, we would see that God has a message for Ahaz and for Judah. And the message is simply, um, he will not allow the invasion to occur. But instead, Ahaz is to have faith and to stand firm. And it is here, in verse 10, where we pick up the story. So let me read here uh, Isaiah chapter 7, beginning of verse 10, down through verse 17. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven, or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Then the Lord will bring things on you, your nation, and your family unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. Now there are a couple of issues that I want to explore here in the text this morning. The first, of course, is this idea of Ahaz rejecting a sign from the Lord. And secondly, I want to explore the meaning of the sign from the Lord. Now, for the full picture of what's going on, uh, we're not going to get all of that from Isaiah. We have to be good Bible students, and we have to look in other places of, in the Scriptures, particularly in those his, historical sections, that give us more of the, the context. What, what's taking place here? And to do that, we will turn over to 2 Kings chapter 16, and we can locate ourselves uh, in chapter 16 of 2 Kings um, by looking there at verse 5, which connects us with um, Isaiah 7-1. And so that helps us n- know that we're in the same sort of period of time. The same, the, it's talking about the same event. So if we switch over there to uh, 2 Kings chapter 16, we'll come to uh, verse 7. And it, it reveals that um, Ahaz's solution to these two rival nations sort of coming together to conspire to attack them is not to turn to Yahweh. But rather to make an alliance with Assyria. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Assyria, if you didn't know, was everybody's enemy. So, to deal with the smaller enemies, Ahaz chooses to conspire with everyone's larger enemy. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised by that. If we were reading through Second Kings, and we came to chapter 16, and we uh, began to read about Ahaz's life, and his reign, and what his character was, we would see that Ahaz Uh, was a pretty despicable guy. He's not someone that we would look up to. He's not a role model. He's not someone that I want any of you younger folks in here to say, hmm, I need to pick someone from the Bible to model my life after. I would say, please, please, please do not turn to 2 Kings Kings Chapter 16. I do not want you following the example of Ahaz. Look what it says about him here in verse 2. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord his God as his ancestor David had done. Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel, even sacrificing his own son in the fire. In this way, he followed the detestable practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the pagan shrines and on the hills and under every green tree. Once again, you young people, (laughs) please do not model your life after the example of Ahaz. Really, it's incredible to me when we come to Isaiah 7 that God even is offering anything to Ahaz at all. It's interesting to me that God would even come to such a wicked king and offer a word of hope. And his invitation there in verse 11 is incredibly generous. For despite all of his wickedness, God, God's promise to Ahaz is that he's going to give him his presence and his protection and to strengthen his faith, he gives him the opportunity to put the Lord to the test. He's saying, Ask me anything. There is no limit. You can ask me anything you want, and I will respond in such a way as to confirm my commitment to you. I will confirm my promise to you. I will show you by whatever you ask that what I say is true. Nevertheless, Ahaz refuses. Now, when I first read through, you know, I hadn't been in Isaiah chapter 7 in some time. I don't remember the last time I was in that exact chapter of that book of the Bible. But as I returned there this week and I just opened the Bible and began reading and began reflecting and thinking, it didn't strike me at first, The reason why Ahaz was refusing. It wasn't until I turned to 2 Kings chapter 16 that I had the fuller picture of what was going on here. At first glance, when we come to Isaiah chapter 7 and we read of his refusal there in verse 12, it it almost comes across as an act of piety, doesn't it? Oh, no, I would never put the Lord to the test like that. You almost wonder if he's thinking back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where the Lord told the people of God, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And that was sort of a, a prevailing notion among the people of, of God, that you don't test God like that. And so when we read Isaiah 7, 12, we think, well, Ahaz, he's, he's being a good, pious Jew. Well, I guess they weren't called Jews yet because they hadn't been taken into captivity, but he's a good, pious Israelite. He's a good, he's a good king. And, well, that, the truth couldn't be further than, away than that, than it is. It's not an act of piety that is the source of his refusal and Chapter 12, but as 2 Kings 16 reveals, it's because of his own stubborn determination to take matters into his own hands. That's at the heart of his refusal to to take up the Lord's invitation to put him to the test. God wants nothing more than for this stubborn, wicked king to turn to him. Do you hear the the grace of God in in these verses? Do you hear it in, in, in Isaiah? when when he comes to a wicked king and he says, ask me anything, ask me anything, and and I'll do it for you. I've made a promise to you. I will do whatever it takes to show you that I will keep the promise. He wants nothing more than for this wicked king to turn to him and to ask for whatever he wants to verify that the word of the Lord is true, but Ahaz has made up his mind, and there's nothing the Lord can do to change it. I once worked uh, alongside a guy named Martin. Now, I was looking through my notes. I was trying to remember if I've ever talked. I try to make sure I don't bore you with my stories over and over again. I know that I, I do that with my friend group because I can never remember what I've told anyone. And so, I'll, I'll, have I told you the story before? If so, tell me and I won't tell it again. Um, so, I don't think I've told you about Martin since at least 2014. So by my records, it has been nine years since you heard about this guy. So I'm counting on uh, those of you who were here then uh, for your bad memories that you're not going to remember about Martin. Uh, And the rest of you have never heard about him before, so you get to hear it for the first time. Uh, So I once worked with a guy named Martin, and he and and I, um, uh, we got along well enough. He was a a nice nice fellow, and um, we were both working for my dad at the time. It was actually, um, goodness, I think that was the year before I moved here. And, uh, and so we were helping my dad, and um, uh, Martin was a good guy, but M- Martin was not a believer. And, and so uh, naturally, in our time together, uh, we had many spirited discussions on the topic of God, and uh, one of the things that continually came up was the fact that he did not like the idea that we are saved by grace through faith. This idea of faith was objectionable to him. This idea... That we had to put our, our faith in some one or something that we couldn't see. He wanted the evidence, right? He wanted proof before he was willing to put his faith in anything. And so he would say things to me like, and I quote, if God is real, why doesn't he just show up and say, here I am? Maybe you've known someone who has made that type of argument before. People who want the proof people who want the evidence before they will have faith. And here's the thing about evidence, though. Evidence only has the power to confirm faith. It does not have the power to create it. I want you to hear that. Evidence and proof does not have the power to create faith. It only has the power to confirm it or to strengthen it. And that's because faith, it's more than just knowing something to be true. Faith is more than just believing in something. Faith is a matter of trusting something. Faith is a matter of committing yourself over to that something. You might know something to be true entirely, but that doesn't mean you're going to put your trust in it or commit yourself over to it. And, you know, really, Martin's expression is not a hypothetical. Because as I was trying to respond to him, well, Martin, it just so happens that God himself did come. How fitting to discuss such a thing as we look around at the lights in the room. This time of the season, is there a better time of the season than than now to talk about the fact that God, in history, revealed himself. That's why we have lights at Christmas. God himself came. And he allowed himself to be exposed. And he showed up and he said, here I am. And my question for you is, and for Martin, did everybody just believe in him? No. In fact, even those who claimed to believe in him didn't believe in him to the very end. God himself arrived on the scene of human history. And this is what we did to him. So you see, evidence and proof doesn't create faith, but it can strengthen it. God is not offering Ahaz evidence in Isaiah chapter 7 as some sort of substitute for Ahaz's faith. No, he wants to confirm it. He wants to to offer Ahaz an aid to his faith. He wants to, to bring confirmation to his heart, that the things he said are true. I can't help but be reminded of the story of the father with the demon possessed son there in Mark chapter 9. Um, you remember this story well, I'm sure. It's, it takes place right after uh, Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, they've been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they come down from the Mount, and when they get, you know, this really high moment in the life, in the earthly ministry of Jesus, and in the lives of those three disciples for sure. This, this great, talk about. Uh, illumination. talk about revelation, talk about light shining into the darkness. I mean, here we have Jesus is transfigured before the, their very eyes, and a voice from heaven declares his identity. I mean, there's no doubt, in any, there should be no doubt in anybody's mind who this person was. And so they come off this, this, this high mountain back down into the real world, and what do they discover? Well, they discover all the rest of Jesus' disciples embroiled in a sort of an argument. Of the people are there debating and arguing over the fact that the other nine were incapable of healing this demon-possessed boy. I I can only imagine the exasperation in Jesus' mind and heart at this time. Well, if it were me. It's a good thing for them and for all of you that I am not Jesus. I would make a terrible Jesus, just let me tell you. But I can imagine how we would all feel in that moment. And so Jesus calls the, the father to bring the boy over to himself and when the when they get there the father says to jesus have mercy on us and help us if you can <laughs> if you can how funny is that and jesus is like if i can listen anything is possible with god anything and i love the response In verse 24, Jesus says, Anything is possible if a person believes. And then it says, The Father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. In other words, Jesus, I'm in a desperate situation. Everything I've tried has failed. And I come to you now, I do believe. My faith is so tiny. It's, so, it's, it's not much. And I, I, need, I need you to do something to help me believe even more. Something to strengthen my faith. Something to confirm my faith. You see the, the cry of the man's heart in this moment. And my question for you is, when God hears that type of prayer, do you think he despises it or do you think he welcomes it? what do you think? Does God despise the prayer of one who wants to believe, who's trying to believe, who's placed whatever teeny little nugget of faith they have in God, but are are desperate for something to help them, help me along, Lord, I'm trying. I've reached the limit of my ability to believe. I need you to expand my belief. Do you think God rejects that and despises that, or do you think God welcomes that? Let me ask it another way. Is there not a fundamental difference between saying, I will not believe until you show me the proof versus I want to believe but I need help? Is there not a fundamental difference between those two attitudes, those two postures towards God? One says, I will not believe, I'm digging my heels in the sand and I will not move until you do something to prove it to me. That was the heart of my, my coworker Martin or I want to believe, I'm trying, but I need help. I think you know the difference. The one here is really a stubborn, rebellious, sinful rejection of light. The light that God has revealed through creation, through his son, to reject the light that we have been given, demanding more light, I will not believe, The light's not sufficient. Well, the scriptures say the light is sufficient. The the light of creation, the the general revelation of God, is sufficient for all people to know there is a God. Read Romans chapter one. It is sufficient. The light in the face of God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, and the, the, the true testament to his life and his death In his resurrection, and what he means is sufficient for you to be saved. So, to dig your heels in the sand and say, I want more, well, that's a, a, a posture, a sinful, wicked, rebellious posture. To put God to the test like that is to invite judgment and condemnation into your life. But the other, is a humble, a humble, honest desire for more light. It's not a demand. It's saying, God, I I receive the light I've been given. I want to walk in the light as as you have given me. But I'm weak. I'm finite. I'm struggling. Life is hard. There's darkness all around. Fill in the blank. It's life you and I live in the real world. One God abhors and one God takes delight in. He wants us to take our, our puny little faith in him and, and, and present it to him and, and allow him to help it to, to grow and to, to, to strengthen and to blossom and to endure. But we have to want that from him. God is offering Ahaz here whatever it will take to stoke into flame whatever spark of faith might reside in his heart. But not even a spark of faith is there to be found as evidenced by Isaiah's shift in what he says in verse 11 and then in verse 13. I don't know if you noticed it the first time. In verse 11, he says to Ahaz, the Lord your God, and then after Ahaz's response, it becomes the Lord my God. That's a, that is a monumental shift in the text. That as, as Ahaz reveals the true intent and attitude and desire of his heart, which is not to, to turn to Yahweh. It is not to trust in the promises or the word of the Lord. It is not to allow God to fan the spark of faith into a, a raging inferno in his life. His intent is not to do that. I will not put the Lord to the test. I have made my decision. I don't, this, there's not a sign in the world that God can give me that will change my mind from taking matters into my own hands. And when that happens in a person's life, they move from the Lord my God, or from Isaiah's perspective, the Lord your God, to the Lord my God. We don't have the same God here, Ahaz. Ahaz. We don't have the same God. And his response is the pinnacle of insanity. Here he has he has the God of the sovereign Creator of the universe, just practically begging him to ask for a sign, and he turns instead to a greater enemy than even Israel or Syria. It's insanity. Which just proves the point that John, I read that John Wesley once made that if a man will not believe in God, he will believe anything. You see that every day in the world in which you live. When people depart from true wisdom, they become utter fools. And we see foolishness masquerading as wisdom every day. And it's becoming more and more absurd. And we wonder, how could anyone believe that? How could anyone really believe that? Well, if a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. And in a really sad twist of irony, Verse 17 of our passage here that I finished reading at the conclusion of that uh, text tells us that the nation in which Ahaz sought his salvation would actually become the very instrument of Yahweh's judgment. Isn't that interesting, little plot twist? The very ones that Ahaz thinks are going to save him are the very ones that Yahweh is going to use to destroy him. Yahweh will bring the king of Assyria upon you. Listen. <clears throat> I know not everyone's favorite, I know the Old Testament is not everyone's favorite part of the Bible. I get it. And I know sometimes when you, you come and, and we you know you open the bulletin and you see where I'm preaching from, maybe you're like, oh, it's Isaiah. I don't know if you feel that way. I hope you don't feel that way. I get it. This is Advent. Right? We have, beautiful, we have a beautiful worship center. Uh, we're, we're we want festivity. We we had the, we went to the parade last night. We gave away five thousand candy canes. Christmas spirit abound. And then we come here and you hear this. I get it. It's hard. It's hard. And listen, this is the context of the Emmanuel verse that we all recite every year at Christmas time. The the one that gives you the warm fuzzies about the Virgin and Emmanuel and God with us. This is the context of it, from Isaiah, that despite his rejection, God is going to give Ahaz a sign anyway. Ahaz, tell me what it will what be. I'll do anything you want. No. All right, well, I'm going to give you one anyway. I'll give you a sign. <laughs> You're getting a sign whether you want a sign or not. And the very sign meant to comfort him will actually serve to condemn him. You see, to the faithful, it is a sign of hope. Hope that Yahweh is mighty to save. Yahweh is true to his word. Yahweh can be trusted. I can commit the matters of my life into the care of Yahweh. But to the wicked, it comes as condemnation and judgment for the foolishness of trusting in ourselves. And I know it's really hard to squeeze all that into a Hallmark card. (laughs) I bet some of you have Christmas cards that you're gonna give to one another, maybe even to me, I don't know, to somebody that quotes Isaiah chapter seven. And it probably won't say anything about the broader context here, that the sign yes, it is a sign of hope, but it is a sign also of judgment. But listen, that's the message of Isaiah 7. Now look, there's one other um, problem in the text that we haven't addressed yet. Um, we read verse 14, which is you know the key verse here, the one that we are familiar with at Christmas time, the one that we see in the Gospels. We come to verse 14, and I'll read it again. The Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. We, we come to that verse, and we rightly identify the child in that verse as, as Jesus, right? But the question is, how is Jesus going to be assigned to Ahaz, who lived 700 years before him? It's it's a problem in the text for us as Christians. Now, for the first readers, it wasn't a problem, but for us, it is. If we're going to identify the son in seven fourteen as Jesus, how was that assigned to Ahaz, who lived seven hundred years prior? Well, the answer to that question comes from the fact that uh, oftentimes Old Testament prophecies have you know layers of meaning and interpretation. If we were to continue reading through Isaiah, which we will do uh, over the coming weeks, and so we'll be kind of coming back to this, but if we were to continue reading this morning into chapter 8 and then into chapter 9, uh, we would see shortly after you know, the Lord through Isaiah says this, this sign will be given, the sign of this child, we will see in chapters 8 and 9 two children brought into the story, two separate children brought into the story, and both of them have significance to this, uh, to this question. The first, of course, comes the beginning of chapter 8, and it is Isaiah's own son. So Isaiah has a a son, um, and it says there in verse 4 of chapter 8 that before this child is old enough to say, Papa or Mama, the king of Assyria, will carry away both the abundance of Damascus and the riches of Samaria. And you might be saying, well, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what Isaiah said back in chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. You remember what that said? Go back to 15 and 16. Isaiah tells Ahaz, by the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. Verse 16, for before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. And so, what we discover here in chapter 8, verse 7, is that Isaiah's son appears to be at least a partial fulfillment of God's judgment upon Ahaz, the sign to Ahaz would be that this child would be born, and by this time, those two nations that Ahaz feared so much, well, they won't be a factor anymore. The Lord's word was true. He told him that that they would never invade, and he kept his word. But you might be saying, verse 14 says, a virgin will conceive the child. And in chapter 8, verse 3, it doesn't say that Isaiah's son was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. It says, no, he was conceived the normal way that every one of us was conceived. It says literally in verse 3, Isaiah slept with his wife and she became pregnant. And so the question is, who is this child? Is the child in 714 Isaiah's child in chapter 8, verse 3 and beyond? Or is it some other child? We, we say it's Jesus, but... How does that work with the 700 years? And we're confused. And the answer, at least part of the answer here is is basically, well, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 14, the word that we see translated virgin in the Hebrew has a range of meaning. How how convenient (laughs) that words have different meanings depending on different contexts, and depending on different usages and interpretations. And it just so happens the word in chapter 7, verse 14 in the original language didn't just mean virgin. It more generally means a, a woman, a young woman of marriageable age. In fact, the, the understanding of that word as virgin did not come until hundreds of years later during the intertestamental period as, as the Old Testament was translated into Greek, into what we know as the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus and his disciples were familiar with. In fact, oftentimes when when a gospel quotes the Old Testament, it's quoting the Greek translation. Isn't that interesting? And it's not until the Septuagint that the word there is more explicitly translated virgin. So the next question is, please hang, hang, hang in here with me. I know this is... I really—I was talking to Jeff and Chelsea this morning during our prayer, and I said, "Man, I, I'm really struggling with this one because I don't want anyone to get lost in the weeds this morning. I don't want to lose anybody who's like they checked out because we got little, you know, little technical here. Um, this is what the text present. It's a genuine problem that we 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 as good Bible students have to commit ourselves to. All right, so hang in here. I, I promise I'm almost done. All right." So it begs the next question, why then does the Septuagint come along and and tweak the translation of that word from just a young woman of marriageable age to a virgin? Based on what? Well, the answer to that is because I told you a moment ago there are two children in view in chapters 8 and 9 of Isaiah. Yes, there's Isaiah's son in chapter 8, but there's another son in chapter nine. He will be the greater fulfillment of God's promise in chapter seven, whose existence can only be owed to some supernatural conception. There's no other explanation for how the son from chapter nine can exist. Can exist. Isaiah's son in chapter 8 fulfills God's promise of a sign to Ahaz because God said, I'll make a promise, uh, I'll show you a sign. And so chapter 8 is the fulfillment to Ahaz, a sign of blessing to the faithful, a sign of judgment to the wicked. But the greater fulfillment will be the coming of another child, one that they will call in chapter 9, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Prince of Peace, one who will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. How do you explain that? Unless it's by some sort of supernatural conception. He is God's promise, not just to one man at one point in time in a particular nation or kingdom in the world in a specific crisis. No, he is God's promise to all mankind. And his miraculous birth will be a sign of ultimate blessing to the faithful and ultimate judgment to the wicked. And that is precisely how the New Testament understands Isaiah chapter 7 through 9. That is exactly how the New Testament understands and interprets things. Look no further than the Gospel of Matthew. I told you earlier that um, the Gospels quote Isaiah uh, Matthew himself, specifically in chapter one, verse twenty-three, quotes Isaiah seven fourteen, and that's usually when we hear the voice of Isaiah at Advent. It's from the voice, It's from the mouth of Matthew, isn't it? So we go to the we go to the New Testament at Advent because that talks about the birth of Jesus, and so we go there and we're, and we're hearing about Jesus, and, and then oh, he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen, and we're like, oh, that's nice. He pulled that quote from Isaiah, and that Isaiah meant that about Jesus. But then when we go to Isaiah and we look at the context, we're like, whoa, there's more going on here than I realized. But Matthew helps us to understand and interpret Isaiah 7 within the broader historical and theological context. He quotes Isaiah 7.14, but this quotation is set within a larger infancy narrative here that interprets the birth of Jesus as the greater fulfillment, not just of Isaiah, but of all the the major Old Testament figures. Matthew's doing a lot in his introduction that most of us miss if we're not in tune with our Old Testament's you don't have the first clue what's going on in Matthew chapter one into chapter two if you don't know what three quarters of the rest of the Bible says. Don't dismiss the Old Testament because it's, it's foreign to you or strange to you or boring to you. You do not understand the last quarter of the Bible without the first three quarters of the Bible. And so Matthew takes all of the Old Testament, all the key figures, Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David, and he says all of them In Isaiah, all of them point to Jesus. The reference of Joseph being a righteous man, the language of the birth announcement, the angelic command in a dream not to fear, all that echoes what? God's promise to Abraham about Isaac. So everything taking place in Joseph and Mary's life is a greater, is an echo of what took place in Abraham's life. And so we are to understand what God is doing in Joseph and Mary's life in the context of what God did through Abraham and his son Isaac. What about the name Jesus that they're told to give him? That means what? Yahweh is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means. But did you know that the name of Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua? Which points to what? Well, the time of, of Moses and the Exodus and the conquest. You mean to tell me that in, just in the name of Jesus, we are to see him as the fulfillment of all of, of the Exodus and Moses and the law? Yeah, yeah. How about his genealogy? What does that point us to? Well, whether through his human mother or his adoptive father, Jesus will be the descendant of whom? Of David. Every time God makes a promise to David about a kingdom that will never end, it was a promise to David, but it was a promise just as much through David that one of his descendants would experience the fullness of that promise. And here he is arriving on the scene. Through his human parents, he's a descendant of David. And yet, through his supernatural conception, he is a descendant, a son of God. The God who provides for his people in miraculous ways. Listen, only one who is simultaneously son of David and son of God could fulfill and receive all the titles of Isaiah chapter 9. How can he be? wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God, and in a few verses later, son of David, unless these things are true of Jesus. And Matthew sees him fulfilling it all, including the promise of a sign of a child born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, 14. Friends, this is what the sign of God means. I, I hope to tie it all up in these last 30 seconds, This is what the sign of God means, that Yahweh himself delivers, that Yahweh himself saves. He keeps his promises. He's true to his word. And to those whose hearts are hard and who refuse the light that has been given to them and are determined, who are resolute to take matters into their own hands and shake their fists in rebellion in the face of God and go their own way well, the coming of Emmanuel signifies their doom. Put that on your Christmas card this year, friends. But to those who will open their hearts, even the tiniest bit, to the light that has been given, those who would just, with whatever whatever they have within them, to welcome it, to receive it, and in their weakness and in their finitude, open themselves up to more, well, coming of Emmanuel signifies the greatest of blessings for he's not just a messianic king well he's the very embodiment of God's divine presence among his people look the virgin will conceive a child she will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel God himself with us all the fullness of God, we're told, dwells bodily in the one who came, the one who lived, the one who died, and the one who was offering himself to you this very moment. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. So is the sign of his coming this morning enough to confirm to your heart the love that God has for you? I hope it, I hope it is. If there was ever proof that we, that we needed that God so loved the world, it is that he gave his one and only son. Is that sign enough for you? Is that sign enough to enable you to trust and to follow and to obey him more deeply this morning? Or will you reject the light that has been given and continue taking the matters of your life into your own hands, to your own everlasting destruction? I know that doesn't fit neatly into a Hallmark card, but... That's the question that lies before us all this morning. Let's pray. Lord, the season of Advent brings a a warmth to our hearts. The nostalgia, the beauty, the fun, the festivities, and especially the the truth of what it's about. It brings warmth to our hearts. But Lord, I I really genuinely don't mean to be crass or to say something I shouldn't, but there is a sense in which the message of Advent should bring a warmth to our rears to take seriously the things of God. May we not miss... The fullness of the sign of Emmanuel this Advent season. May we not get so caught up in all the stuff that we fail to discern the, the choice that lies before us moment by moment. To, to trust in the light or to reject the light. My prayer is that everyone here this morning would, would like a like a flower would open themselves up fully to the warmth of your your presence and your countenance, your face, the the truth of who you are revealed in your son. Lord, may we respond to this this challenge in a personal and decisive way this morning in the moments to come. Lord, I'm trusting you to guide us how to respond. And I just pray that you would give us the strength to do it. May we be a people who puts all of our trust, however, however much or little we have, in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.